Caleb and Nicole are traveling this morning, so I'm pinch hitting for them. It's the first day of the year. Uh, my name is Glenn Butner. I know many of you, some of you I don't know. Um, I've been a part of this church since it was first planted. Um, but oftentimes I'm in the back there on the sound team. Um, just recently I started usually. I teach at Sterling College, so a number of my students are already back. Um, as you can see me here. And, uh, my wife Lydia is over there. Sunday school. By the way, normally we have three classes. Today, though, at the beginning of the year, I think we have a short staff. Um, so normally we dismiss the older kids at this time and give them a blessing. But unless I'm mistaken, if somebody can find me out I am, there will be no older Sunday school class today. So um, the kids you get to listen to preach as well. Um, we're not continuing a sermon series today, so we just wrapped up a series on the book of Revelation. And we'll be returning soon to 1 Samuel. Um, however, I'm just giving you kind of a one-off sermon this morning. We'll be looking at Genesis chapter 9. Um, and I have preached a lot, but I've only preached occasionally with PowerPoints. And as it turns out, I found out this morning I have way too many words on the PowerPoint. So especially if you're in the back, you want to pull out your Bible and follow along or uh, Google it and pull it up on your phone. So if you'll turn with me to Genesis 9, I'll get started this morning by just reading the passage of Scripture I've been preaching through. So this passage... Occurs um, right after the great flood in the book of Genesis. And in it, God extends a new covenant to Noah. And so, this begins in chapter 9, verse 1. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear and terror of you will be in every living creature on the earth every bird of the sky, every creature that crawls on the ground, and all the fish of the sea. They are placed under your authority. Verse 3, every creature that lives and moves will be food for you. As I gave the green plants, I have given you everything. However, you must not eat meat with its lifeblood in it, and I will require a penalty for your lifeblood. I will require it from any animal and from any human. If someone murders a fellow human, I will require that person's life. Whoever sheds human blood, by humans his blood will be shed. For God made humans in his image. But you, be fruitful and multiply. Spread out over the earth and multiply on it. Verse 8. Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, Understand that I am establishing my covenant with you and your descendants after you, and with every living creature that is with you birds, livestock, and all wildlife of the earth that are with you, all the animals of the earth that came out of the ark. I establish my covenant with you that never again will every creature be wiped out by floodwaters. There will never again be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all future generations. I have placed my bow in the clouds, and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I form clouds over the earth, and the bow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all the living creatures. Water will never again become a flood to destroy every creature. The bow will be in the clouds, and I will look at it and remember the permanent covenant between God and all the living creatures on the earth. 
God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and every creature on earth. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Well, thankfully I am not God. And I suspect none of you saw me walk up here this morning and wondered if I was. I imagine nobody had that thought this morning. Maybe in my bad moments, my ego might think that I'm God, that I should be in control of everything. I might be tempted to think that the universe revolves around me. But in reality, I am not the most important existing person. And this is good news for a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons that this is extremely good news is that I tend to respond to sin with more rules. So, if my children are being unruly, for example, if they're being wild, if they're fighting with one another, or disrespecting their mother, uh, my instinct is to fight that sin in them by just laying on more consequences and rules. I assume, especially when I parent, that sin can be corrected with more rules and laws. New forms of disobedience just require new regulations. But thankfully, this sort of response is not what we see from God following the flood. And so as the flood is this tremendous change in how God has interacted with creation, so Genesis 9 shows us God's new start with creation. Here we are at the start of a new year. I thought it would be good to look at this passage as we're starting something new and to try and learn something from God about it. One of the first things I think we can learn from God about this passage is that he's so different from me. There's been a tremendous amount of sin in the ancient world, but when we look at God's words to Noah after the flood, we don't find a lot of law. Now, if we aren't paying close attention, we might be tempted to think that what he's doing is just giving more of the rules. So, a quick read, you might see a lot of commandments. For example, be fruitful and multiply. That might look like a new law. In verses 1 and verses 7. Or, you must not eat meat with lifeblood in it. In verse 4. And something like the teaching in verse 5, where God says, if someone murders a fellow human, I will require that person's life. That might seem like the commandment, do not murder. So if we just read this quickly, it might seem that God is a little bit more like me, and that he's responding to the great sins of the ancient world, by just adding a greater list of rules. And though it's certainly true that, to a small extent, the teachings of God in the law can guide the spirit-filled Christian to help us become better, that's not the primary way that God responds to sin. God's primary response is never law, but always grace. And I think if we read Genesis 9 a little bit more closely, but that's what we see here after the flood. So let's think again about these commandments that I've quickly gone through in Genesis 9. So, be fruitful and multiply. You might remember that God blessed Adam and Eve and instructed them to be fruitful and multiply as well in Genesis 1.28. This is before the fall. This is before sin had harmed their relationship with God and with one another. So, here, with Noah, God is not giving a new law to humanity, but instead he's reminding Noah and his family of what their original purpose was. In my mind, this is a striking example of grace. 
Again, my tendency as a parent is to respond to disobedience by taking away rights and privileges and responsibilities. So my kids will lose screen time, or I will take away a toy that's been a source of conflict, or I'll say they're not ready for a certain responsibility, and so I revoke it. But here, after a time when humanity has been so evil that Genesis 6 can say, every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time, God restores humanity after the flood to their original role in creation. They are to spread the image of God through bearing children. God also reaffirms humanity's dominion over creation in chapter 9, verse 2. Now, our tendency might be to remove a corrupt leader from future leadership. But God takes humanity, who have been corrupt in their leadership, and he places humanity in the form of Noah's family, once again in their Edenic role. They, are, they have dominion over all the plants and all the animals, with one small restriction, not eating the lifeblood. Nor should we think that the commandment not to kill is something new. Surely we've seen this in the pre-flood example of Cain and Abel. So I'm convinced that Genesis 9 is not law. God's not giving a lot of new ethical teachings to Noah. Instead, God is extending grace to Noah and his posterity. And since the Bible teaches that all of us are descended from Noah and his children, this means that God has shown grace to all of us as well. Even beyond that, this covenant is not just with the human race, even though that's the most significant partner in this covenant, but God says it's to all of creation, all of the creatures, that he has extended this grace of the covenant. <clears throat> the idea that God gives everything grace is a doctrine known as the doctrine of common grace. So common grace is just the idea that insists that God is gracious toward all of creation. But I need to be really careful here because this is something you can easily misinterpret. So let me start by just denouncing, denying, rejecting a misinterpretation of the idea I'm presenting this morning. Because you hear the word grace and you might link it with salvation. So when I talk of common grace and God being gracious toward everyone and all of creation, I am not talking about the idea that everyone will one day be saved. I'm not saying that everything is automatically saved. I don't think that's what scripture teaches. When we speak of salvation, we are referring to what theologians call special grace. So special grace is what Christians receive by faith through which they are saved because of everything that Jesus Christ did for us through his life, death, and resurrection. Christians receive special grace because the Holy Spirit prompts us to believe, but all of humanity and even all of creation benefits from common grace. That common grace doesn't necessarily lead to salvation. It's grace because it's a gift from God. And so common grace is what's evident here in Genesis chapter 9. Because these gifts that God is giving to all of creation aren't deserved by creation. They come from God's action, and they're oriented toward God's plan of redemption. But let me say again up front, when we identify God's grace in this passage toward all humans, we can't deceive ourselves 
into accepting a universalistic idea of salvation that undermines the work of Christ and the need for the cross, and our call to be involved in missions and evangelism. So keep that in mind. That's not what I'm saying when I'm saying God extends grace to everyone. It's not salvation that the whole world automatically receives. We still need the cross. And yet, God is still gracious to all of life. So let's look again at Genesis 9 and get a clearer sense of that blessing that God bestows on humanity after the flood. And they are blessings. Look in verse 1. The first thing the passage said says is God blessed Noah. And I find three blessings here, three graces. The grace of provision, the grace of protection, and the grace of preparation. So God provides for us, God protects us, and God prepares the way for his Messiah. All the way back in this covenant after the flood. Now, so this looks like a good three-point sermon, but I guess for the new year I've made some kind of resolution not to do the basic three-point sermon. So I'm going to shake it up and I'm going to give you three points for each of these three points. I'm going to give you an excellent nine-point sermon, which sounds like a great idea on a day when everybody didn't sleep enough. So um, let's see what we can do. I'm going to walk through each of these three, starting with the grace of provision. God, beginning with Noah and his family, provides for creation. And we especially find that in this passage in verses 1 through 3. When Noah, excuse me, when God instructs Noah and his children to be fruitful and multiply, I think God is actually extending to them the grace of family, which is a gracious provision for our needs. If you think about it, God might have chosen to end the line of Adam by rendering Noah's family barren so they couldn't have any children. Maybe he'd say, okay, Noah, you still have faith, so I'm not going to kill you in the flood, but I'm still done with this whole human project, so you're not going to have any kids, and when you and your kids die, it's all done with. But that's not what God does. Instead, he blesses Noah and his family, and he encourages continuing practice of marriage and childbearing. And the consistent theme that we see throughout Scripture, for example, Psalm 127.3 puts it succinctly, is that children are indeed a heritage from the Lord, an offspring, a reward. That's Psalm 127. The family provides for all of humanity a source of mutual care, a source of mutual love, a source of nurturing one another. And yes, I know that we live in a fallen world, and maybe that's not been your experience of family. In a fallen world... Families can hurt us and wound us. Because of death and abandonment, we can find orphans and those who are outcasts. I also know that the New Testament speaks of singleness as a high calling from the Lord. Not everyone should get married. In those situations, I think God has provided an alternative family, our brothers and sisters in Christ. But that's the subject of another sermon. For now... I want to acknowledge that there is great potential found within families, even despite sin. For example, I think of my daughter Sophia, who's back in the nursery this morning. She'll be turning two in a couple of weeks, and she thinks I'm the greatest person in the world. So, eventually she's going to be let down. But for now, I can do no wrong in her eyes. So a little earlier this year, I had the gift that keeps on giving. I got COVID-19, 
and I sequestered myself away from the family for five days. They didn't catch it, which was nice, but I didn't see them for five days. I don't know if it was worth it, but that's what we did. And I finally emerged from the room, and little Sophia did laps, giggling around the kitchen for literally five minutes because she got to see her daddy. When I come home from work and I ask for a hug, she just throws out her arms and comes and gives me one right away, no matter what. With complete abandon. I don't think there's anybody in the world that thinks as highly of me as Sophia does. I don't think anybody loves me so unconditionally. And yes, her love is not the deep and supportive love that I get from my wife. It's not as edifying as that, but I guarantee you my wife knows more of my faults than my daughter does. I don't deserve the unconditional and exhaustive love that I receive from my daughter, Sophia. And yet, I receive it all the time. That is God providing for us through family. God also provides for humanity by giving us dominion over other creatures. So you can look at the second half of verse 2, where creatures are placed under the authority of human beings. Or verse 3, when all animals are given to us for food. Now our dominion means that creation is going to be useful for us and nourishing to us. And I think the animals here are a sign of the larger reality of creation. It's not just animals and food that God has provided for us through our dominion, but it's many blessings found throughout creation that we can have dominion over. God designed a world so that we can develop great technologies out of it. So all the technology you see up here, God had that potency within the world that he created so that we could develop it. As a result of that technology, we can see our culture grow. We can see the benefits of science. We can see the products of industry. And all of this capability is given to human beings who have dominion over creation. <coughs> now, because of this, we can find in all cultures around the world, whether Christian or not, great accomplishments. So I think of the various moles, kind of a random thing, but I'm a foodie. A foodie. Uh, the moles developed in pre-Columbian Latin America. So they take tons of different ingredients you would never think of putting together. They can range everything from chocolate to pumpkin seeds to tomatillos, peppers. God hid complex flavors and things all throughout his creation so that we could discover them and develop new complex sauces and flavors. And this ability to do something with creation is a gracious way that God, a gracious thing that God has provided for us as a result of our dominion. Because humans have dominion, we can expect each culture to have amazing discoveries and artistic achievements. God provides for all of humanity through family and through our dominion over creation. Now here, I expect, since this is a congregation that knows the Bible well, one or two of you might be wondering, what about the doctrine of sin? Isn't this view a little too rosy about human nature and society? Doesn't the Gospel of John, for example, describe the world as the enemy of Christ? Doesn't Paul insist in Romans 3 that all of us are sinful? Well, this brings us to the fact of God's protection. We have to remember that apart from God, there's nothing good. For as Jesus reminds us in Mark 10, 18, no one is good but God alone. So surely this means that where we do find goodness in any culture, that we have to attribute it to the good and gracious work of God. 
So this doctrine of common grace necessarily follows from the surprise that we have at all the good things we find in the sinful world. For example, take the very Bible itself. Now, the words in the Bible are a result of God's special grace. They are given to us to be words of salvation so that we might know the gospel and live. And yet, the writing of the Bible is only possible through common grace. Think about the book of Exodus, for example. Exodus is possible because the Sumerians invented writing, which they could put down on papyrus invented by Egyptians, using a treaty style invented by the Hittites. The Bible draws on the cultural achievements of other cultures. Does this mean that all of those cultures knew God and were saved? No, certainly not. If God has not revealed himself, he remains hidden in inaccessible light. But it does show that God is graciously working everywhere in all of history to bring about his plan for the nations in Jesus Christ. So we see in Genesis 9 that besides provision, God has provided protection. He has restrained sin and its consequences, again, in at least three ways. First, we know that sin affects creation itself. But look at verse 2. The fear and terror of you will be in every living creature, God promises to Noah. You see, once sin had made nature red in tooth and claw, Noah and his family could have easily been overcome by the very wild animals he brought onto the ark. More recently, our world is worried about things like diseases and natural disasters. This is a fallen world. Those things do happen. Animal attacks do still happen. But God protects the human race as a whole from the threats of the natural world. Second, God also protects us from one another. And so in verse 5, he promises that if someone murders a fellow human, he will require that person's life. The warning itself is a protection, but what's implied here also is the formation of government, which Paul teaches in Romans 13 is God's agent of wrath to punish wrongdoers. Now it might be a surprise for you in our recent political climate to think about the government as a blessing from God which provides protection, but if you're skeptical, just think about what we know from recent failed states that have happened around the world in the last century. Where there's no government at all, you wind up with marauding violent gangs and militias that aren't restrained by any police or army. The economy completely collapses. Healthcare and education collapse. Even travel becomes difficult without things like roads. So I don't intend to deny all the ways that governments can be bad. In fact, actually, last time I was up here preaching in September, I was assigned a text all about government. I had that great privilege of preaching about government for half an hour. Lots of evil that could be there. But even a sinful government has some ability to restrain the evils that we might do to one another. And so God is protecting us from ourselves. Ultimately, though, I think God's common grace is protecting us from his wrath. If we go back to Genesis 2, 17, we see God warn that on the day that Adam and Eve eat the fruit of the tree, they will surely die. But they ate the fruit, and they didn't die on that day. God could justly end the life of any and all sinful humans. That much is clear from the flood narrative. No one knew that better than anybody else. And yet... By God's grace, he has protected humanity, including all of us, from his wrath, letting humankind grow into a population of over 7 billion. So God provides for us and God protects us. 
Look now at verse 9, which says, Understand that I am establishing my covenant with you. It's only after all of this that God begins his covenant with Noah. So everything that's come before, it has ethical teachings in it, but it's not law. It's not a condition Noah has to fulfill in order to receive the covenant. God doesn't say, here's my covenant, now do all this stuff. God says, here's some rules. Really, it's me giving you great privilege. And beyond that, I'm going to establish a covenant with you. And this is what the covenant teaches. Verse 11, I establish my covenant with you that never again will every creature be wiped out by floodwaters. God has promised, never again will I bring my wrath to bear against creation in the same way. And he places his rainbow in the sky to prove this. So even here in the early chapters of Genesis, we see that God has a plan for redemption. He's holding back his wrath. And so third, God's restraint of his judgment is also preparatory. It prepares. God continues the human race so that it may produce a redeemer. Without this grace first extended to Adam and Eve, and later to Noah and his family, nothing else in redemption history would have happened. If Adam and Eve died right away, there would be no other human beings. There would be no Noah, no covenant with Noah, no Abraham or David or anyone else who received a covenant. No nation of Israel, no prophets to predict the coming of the, the Messiah, no Mary to give birth to the Messiah, no Roman Empire to execute the Messiah, nobody to witness the Messiah rise back to life, and nobody sitting here in church today to hear the good news that you were saved because Jesus died and rose again from the dead. God's protection he offers us from his wrath prepares the way for the coming of the Messiah that we might receive the gospel. And so God's common grace to all of humanity by allowing the human race to continue prepares his special grace for those who believe. Quickly, I think we see God's preparation in two more places after the flood. The first is in Genesis chapter 8, before what we read for today. But beginning in 820, Noah builds an altar and he sacrifices to the Lord. This is after the flood. He's giving a sacrifice of thanksgiving. And in verse 21, God smells the pleasing aroma and he decides, I will never again curse the ground because of human beings. And I will never again strike down every living thing. Now, if we think about this in terms of what we know about God, God is perfect and perfectly independent. He doesn't need anything. He has everything. So Noah is not giving God anything here that earns God's favor. We also know that God is eternal, and he's unchangeable, and he's steadfast in his sovereign will. So Noah isn't here changing God's mind. As Numbers 23, 19 reminds us, God is not a man that he might lie, or a son of man, that he should change his mind. I'm convinced that what we see in this sacrifice, as in all sacrifices, is a foreshadowing of the work of Christ. It's because of Christ's sacrifice that we receive God's special grace and are saved. So if common grace is preparing the way for Christ, then we see not only with Noah, but with other cultures around the world, this idea there must be some sacrifice to please whatever God exists. And those sacrifices, and especially the sacrifice that Noah gives, is a sign pointing forward to the fact that there's really only one sacrifice, and that's Jesus Christ on the cross. A second way that God is preparing is by establishing symbols that will help his people recognize Jesus when he comes. 
So verse 4 in chapter 9 again. Noah and his family are forbidden from eating the lifeblood in an animal. We might wonder, what's so special about blood? The author of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 9 that the sacrificial system is a copy of things in heaven. And that the blood of bulls and goats is actually a picture of Christ's blood. So when Noah hears not to eat the lifeblood, he's learning that blood is associated with life. And that it's something holy and sacred that he ought not to just consume tritely. And this prepares him to recognize Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life, whose bloody sacrifice serves for us as the true food and drink of the Lord's Supper. So even in the days of the flood, God has prepared these symbols and these signs, pointing forward to salvation. Common grace prepares the way for the Messiah. So we see in Genesis 9 that God extends grace to the entire world. He provides for us through family, through government, through dominion that leads to science and culture and industry. We see God protecting us from the fallen creation, from one another and from his wrath. And we see God preparing the way of his coming Messiah. And what does all this have to do with us this morning? First day of 2023. We do two take-home applications here. First of all, common grace shows us that sin and wrath, as powerful as they are, don't have the final word in creation. God is working throughout the world to restrain sin and to provide all humans with undeserved gifts, whether they know him or not, whether they worship him or not. They've received some of these blessings that we've talked about. These take a variety of forms, again, from the nature of family to our artistic accomplishments. We ought not underestimate sin, but we also should not imagine that the powers of sin are winning against God, because God is providentially acting everywhere. So if he's acting everywhere, we should expect to find hints of his grace wherever we go. We should expect to find gifts from him among Christians and among non-Christians. Sometimes we don't think in that mindset. So on this first day of a new year, I don't know what your last year looked like. It may have been your favorite year of your life. It may have been the hardest one of your life. But no matter how much sin encroached on 2022 for you, no matter how dark things came, I believe that somewhere God's gifts were still present to you and to those around you. So I challenge you on this first day of the year to recognize that however much evil you experienced last year, it did not win. You're still here. And so I encourage you to spend time in reflection and prayer today thinking about the different places that you see God giving you gifts. Certainly salvation through the cross, maybe some of these other small things you wouldn't have otherwise thought about. Second, though, if we expect grace to be found everywhere, if God's gifts extend beyond just what we're doing here on a Sunday morning, then we should recognize the value of life outside of the church. I went to a Christian high school, and then I spent a lot of time in college at a Christian campus ministry at a state school. And 20 years later, which is crazy, but yes, my 20-year high school reunion is in a couple of months. 20 years later, I look back, and a surprising number of us went on to be clergy, or something close to it. So I teach theology. I'm kind of like professionally working with the Bible all day. And that's a good thing. 
But it almost seems as if, looking back, those of us in that Christian context thought the only way to serve God was to go into some sort of formal ministry. A ministry is great. I don't mean to downplay the significance of pastors and elders. God has called them alone to lead the church. And I think it's a special calling. It's one that I don't think God has placed upon my life. And yet, if God is at work around the world, then I think Christians can recognize the value of other parts of human life. If God's gifts extend beyond just the church, then the things that you do outside of the church also matter to God and are also ways to find his gifts and his presence. And so Christians must recognize the value of other things as a holy calling. Something like a participation in a ministry of common grace that parallels what pastors do in the ministry of special grace. First Peter, for example, will call this... Uh, call Israel and Christianity a nation of priests. Later on, Martin Luther will call this the priesthood of all believers. We all have a priestly role in helping the world to see God's grace. Now, some of us are going to make New Year's resolutions. This isn't a practice that comes from Scripture, or as far as I know, that even comes from a church context, but I think many of us are going to do this anyway, and I think it can be a good idea. And a lot of us are going to do this with ideas about God in mind, and especially about church. Maybe we're committing to a new Bible reading plan, or better church attendance, or maybe you're going to serve here in some new way. We always need people on the sound team. <laughs> but the doctrine of common grace should remind us that we can serve and glorify God outside of the church context. All of those resolutions are great, but we should also be asking, how can we find God's grace more in our role as parents and within our families, in our role as students, in our workplace? In what new ways might you commit to glorify God in your callings this year? After all, Genesis 9 is one of many biblical passages that reveals that God is working through everything toward his glory, preparing people that they might know his Messiah. And this everything includes your job, your family life, and your time in school. That can still be really abstract, so I want to give you a final practical application, or sort of a practical framework that you can work through today or in the coming days as you're reflecting on this. And it comes from a scholar named David Miller, who spent years studying how Christians incorporate their faith into the workplace. And he says you can ultimately boil it down into one of four things. And he's put together a nice uh, sort of four-quadrant rubric that's going to be up here on the screen. He says, some Christians focus on evangelism. So they wonder, how can they share their faith with their co-workers, or their classmates, or their family, or their customers? That's a really important thing that we can be wondering for this year. How can we better evangelize? Others focus on ethics. Now this could be in terms of your personal ethics. Am I honest and trustworthy? But it might be looking at the ethics of the organizations you're a part of. So does my company or my division have equitable and just wages? Do we have moral business practices? Are we raising our kids and our families so that they develop virtue? That's considering ethics in your daily life. Another group, though, focuses on enrichment. They're trying to learn how to incorporate spiritual disciplines into their life. So don't just pray when you come here on Sunday mornings or first thing in the morning when you wake up in your quiet time. Those things are great. I hope you're not just on your phone here. I hope you're joining us in praying and worshiping. But how can you incorporate those things into your 9-to-5 job or into your family life? This could be something you practice personally, like meditating on scripture when you're stressed at work. 
Or it could be something you do corporately, like inviting coworkers to come together for a Bible study, or establishing an accountability group with your classmates. And a fourth group focuses on experience. Sometimes we get in the mindset that this is what we're doing to encounter God, and everything else is just something that doesn't matter and won't continue in the end. But I think Genesis 9 shows us that it does matter. Adam and Eve worked in Eden, tending the garden before there was any sin. In Genesis 9, God reestablishes that basic role for Noah and for all of us. Have dominion. Raise families. Develop the world. But we can get in a mindset that it doesn't have any value to God. But those in the experience quadrant are trying to rethink and reinterpret what they do every day so that they see it as something valuable to God. A lot of times people do well to start with one of these quadrants, but Miller says the ideal is we actually have all four of these put together. And so this works as a helpful framework for us to think about how we might experience God's common grace at the start of the new year. So that's the challenge I leave you. As Genesis 9 shows, God extends grace to all of creation, providing humans to make family, government, culture, and work to glorify Him. He protects us from ourselves and from His wrath. And above all, through these things, He prepares the way for the Messiah. He's doing these things today in our own societies, preparing our hearts through things like work and dominion that we may know the Messiah more and more. And so at the start of the new year, that's my prayer for you, that you may come to know Christ ever more deeply, but also in surprising context that you might not have expected. I'm going to close this in prayer, and as we do, I'll ask the worship team to come back forward. Father, thank you so much for the grace that you extended to Noah, and through Noah, that you extended to each and every human in this room and across this planet. Lord, I do pray that this year we may have eyes to see the gifts that you have given us in our families, in our workplaces and in our classrooms. And Father, I pray that we might respond in thankfulness to those gifts, even as in some cases they have been hidden behind our sins and our sufferings in this fallen world. And I pray that all the people in this room may see those things today. I ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.